Well, let's go ahead and get right into some basics here. Now, I've covered this before, but I have learned I cover the foundational issue right up front in almost all my messages because if you leave and get nothing else, this, this can be life-changing for many people. We've covered it. I'm going to get right on into it. Just go through it quickly. And that is that God gave us a perfect creation. How can we have a, a world full of death and, and, and suffering and yet have a loving God? God didn't give us the world the way it is today, full of death and suffering. He gave us a perfect creation. What happened to it? Adam's original sin. Adam's sin brought on the curse, allowing death to enter. And that's why we live in a world full of death today. But we have a loving uh, Christian God. How loving is that God? Well, that original sin is more important than bringing death into the world. That original sin is what separated us from God. This required us to be redeemed with God, but as I said earlier, we can't redeem ourselves with God. Now, interesting, right there in Genesis 3.15, the first question posed in the Bible is Genesis 3.1, where Satan plants doubt in Eve's mind by asking questions, by questioning God's word. He does the same thing today. And this is where you find that hath God said, and God had told Eve, after the, after the fall, after Satan uh, got her and Adam to commit the original sin, God came down and, and is putting the curse on the world. And on Adam and Eve, on Satan, he's, he's pronouncing the curse. And the, the childbearing will be painful, etc. And right in the middle of this, he also gives us the promise of the coming Redeemer. Where he says, I'll put in between thee and the woman, and her seed shall bruise thy head. Her seed. Well, wait a minute. Seed comes from the man. What are we being told? Well, God is cursing the world. He's telling them also he'll send a redeeming Savior born of a virgin. Wow, right there in Genesis 3.15. So as God is putting the curse on the creation because of our sin, because of Adam and Eve's sin, He also promises a coming redeemer born of a virgin. See, we can't redeem ourselves with God because we're all sinful. The best human still sins. So we have a problem there. You have to be 100% righteous to be redeemed with God, and we can't be righteous. So how loving is God? He sent his only begotten son, part of the triune Godhead, to suffer and die on a cross, his shed blood covering our sin, and the only thing he asks of us is to believe in him. That's the only thing he asks believe in him. Actually, it doesn't get any more simple than that, except Satan is really good at what he does, and he's throwing out stumbling blocks left and right, and he's asking all these questions. Did God say? Hath God really said a six-day creation? Did he really say a flood that covered all the high hills under the whole heaven? Couldn't have the world evolved slowly? Couldn't have used evolution and millions of years of death and suffering to get there? I mean, just on and on, trying to plant seeds of doubt. As I said before, the linchpin in the war of worldviews is whether or not God judged man's sin with a flood of waters that covered all the high hills under the whole heaven. And I'm, I'm kind of going through this because we've discussed it twice already. And sure enough, you know, from a, if people ask me, Russ, what, what proof uh, would you point out to the word of God being true? <clears throat> well, the first thing I'd say would be go to the prophecies, especially the ones about Israel in the last days. And uh, it's really pretty mind-boggling. But uh, from a geological standpoint, I'd claim I'd point out the Bible says God judged man's sin with a flood that covered all the high hills under the whole heaven. And today, the crust of the earth averages a mile deep of sedimentary layers of rock stratified out by grain size, weight, and density by moving water. So you have layers, and says just one big brown conglomerate, 
which you'd, you'd expect that they form slowly, <clears throat> and they're full of billions of dead things that were drowned and buried before they could even rot away or get eaten by scavengers. We call those things fossils today. Back to the prophecies in the New Testament. In 2 Peter, they'll come in the last days, scoffers. And what these scoffers are really saying, I'm paraphrasing here, is they're, they're questioning, where's the return of Jesus? Where's the Messiah? Because since the founding fathers died, all processes remain the same as they were from the beginning of the creation. Uniformity, uniformitarianism, all things are uniform. That's what secular geology is based upon today. And they're going to be willingly ignorant that by the word of God, the world that was being overflowed with water perished. Secular geology for the last 150 years is based on two principles, uniformity and no global flood, just like the Word of God said would happen in the last days. Now, Jesus also said, you'll know, uh, you'll know good from bad by the fruit. A good tree will bring forth good fruit. The corrupt tree will bring forth evil fruit. We're supposed to tell good from bad by the fruit. Um, the fruit of these old earth beliefs, based on the beliefs in uniformity and no global flood, include Darwinism, secularism, humanism, naturalism, all the pagan religions, and all the compromised positions inside of the church today. They're all based on believing in uniform processes and denying the global flood. What do Christians say that want to try to fit old earth beliefs into the Bible? They say it wasn't a global flood, it was a local flood. Right off the bat, I know they're trying to fit millions of years into the Bible. And what they don't understand is that puts death before Adam. You know, with 90% of our colleges teaching that, you can't have millions of years of death before man and then turn around and say man's sin brought in death, separating us from God. You see that? It's subtle and it's, and it's devastating at the same time. And pointing this out will not make you popular. It's just the way it is. I've been doing this 23 years. If you want to be popular, don't talk about these things. Um, but I, just, I would like to be popular, not for myself, but so I could reach millions of people with this information. But to compromise so you can reach millions of people, you're not reaching them with anything anyway. So, uh, so it's, I'm kind of stuck in that rock in a hard place. But what the old earth beliefs do is they put death before Adam. And that's, that's what, um, when I speak in front of groups, and I point out the death before Adam issue and how it comes down to the flood, I see mouths drop open. I've had so many pastors come up to me afterwards and say, Russ, i got to tell you, I really didn't want to have you come here and speak about creation. I thought it was a waste of time. But people kept bugging me about having you here. Sometimes it takes years, I mean 15 years. And he said, finally, I said, fine, we'll have him come speak. And you just showed me this is the foundation of everything. And they didn't, they didn't even realize it. Actually, I've had a couple of people say something to those, those uh, areas to me today. It's, it's just a sad thing that it's so hard to get the truth out there. But you see, once you put death before Adam, again, you can't teach Adam sin brought death into the world, separating us from God. You can't have it both ways. Did millions of years of death bring man into the world, or did man's sin bring death into the world? So then the diehards, now this, this will turn, I'd say, 75% of them around. But the diehards, that's a different story. And then they're going to say, well, it was only human death. And, you know, anyways, I can address all that. No, it was, it was death of nephish life. Nephish life. That's a, uh, nephish is the term used uh, in the Hebrew, and it uh, denotes a sense of consciousness. Uh, nephish is used for human life, 
and Nefesh Kaya for animal life, uh, basically uh, vertebrates with a backbone, which oh, I almost said left most Republicans out of it, but that, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> I wasn't going to go there. I'm sorry. Don't, don't think I'm a Democrat, but uh, <clears throat> sorry, that just kind of slipped. <clears throat> but, you know, atheists have understood this for a long, long time. I could give you so many quotes. This is from the editor of American Atheist. If there was never an original sin, there's no need of salvation. No original sin, no separation. No separation, no need for redemption. They've, they've understood this for 200 years. Our side still hasn't figured it out. But today we're losing up to 85% of our kids by the age of 20. And I would challenge the church to stop compromising and Share this information. And this is the reason I don't copyright my stuff. Let's get some information out there. The Bible says, prove all things and hold fast that, which is good. Some people come up to me and say, you're not supposed to prove the Bible's true. You've probably heard that before. But that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> you know, God's not afraid of science. Real science is on our side. Real science is a believer's best friend, always has been. Always will be. False science is another issue. Real science is knowledge derived from the study and testing of observable evidence. Something has to be testable, studyable, observable, repeatable for the findings to be scientific in nature. And real science is a believer's best friend. This textbook tells kids, evidence certifies the planet Earth is more than 4 billion years old. Really, the evidence certifies the Bible's not true and billions of years of death existed for man. Hmm. Just in case, it's not quite as certified as they want to make kids believe. Let's just take a quick look at uh, where the old earth beliefs come from. Now, I'm just giving a, a little 25% piece. I've got an entire hour-long teaching on the age of the earth issues. Let's just talk about carbon dating. It's probably the most popular of the isotope dating methods. It's actually used on um, organic material, plant and animal remains. Most of the radiometric dating techniques are used on igneous rock. They think the melting process sets the age of the rock back to zero. In carbon dating, they measure the amount of carbon-14 in organic remains. Well, during the process of photosynthesis, plants breathe in CO2 that contain trace amounts of carbon-14, which becomes a part of their tissue. Uh, animals get C14 in them from breathing the air or for, from eating plants. Now, carbon-14 decays away over time, there's some uh, argument over how long it will remain in measurable amounts, but as uh, a pretty good uh, estimate, uh, it's measurable for about 100, for 80 to 100,000 years. And after that, they won't have enough carbon-14, it's not measurable. So first of all, once an animal or plant dies, it stops taking in carbon-14, and because um, it stops eating and breathing, that's always been my observation, by the way. And uh, the carbon-14 in that organic remain is decaying away. It decays away over time, should be completely gone in less than 80,000 years in measurable amounts. Now, by comparing the amount that's in an organic item in the ground, which has been decaying away, to what is in the atmosphere, which they think is fairly uniform, they can say, what well, went from this amount decayed to this amount over this time, and that's how they date things. Um, sounds reasonable, up to just a few thousand years, though. It's only good for a few thousand years at best. Um, except the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere they now know goes up and down. So there's really no starting point to uh, estimate from. So carbon-14 can give very, very large ranges of dates on the same item. 
For instance, this from Science Magazine, uh, they dated living penguins at 8,000 years old. Uh, shells from living snails dated 27,000 years old. Basically, carbon dating is somewhat reliable for about 2,000 years, and that's really the only reliable date she can get. And I would suggest that that is mainly because they can usually uh, uh, corroborate that, that carbon date with a historical date. So in other words, if they found a cotton shawl, and they know that the, the group that used to make those existed you know, 1,000 to 2,000 years ago, guess what? It's going to carbon date, 1,000 to 2,000 years old. This from the Anthropological Journal of Canada. The troubles of carbon dating are undeniably deep and serious. There are gross discrepancies. Half the dates are rejected, and accepted dates, you know, the published dates we get to see, they're actually selected dates. They mean they, they pick a date they want something to be? Okay, where do they pick it from? Where do the radiometric dating techniques really come from? From the man-made geologic column or time scale. The dates have to match the time scale to be selected. Now this was made up in the early 1800s. They made a drawing of 12 primary layers and they assigned ages, names, and index fossils to each layer. The key uh, really are, well, the key are the index fossils. They say, let's say this, this creature went extinct while that layer was forming slowly over their millions of years. So he wouldn't be found in the newer layers above because he was, what, <clears throat> extinct, right? So the index fossils are real key. Let me ask you a question, though. Back in the early 1800s when, you know, modern weapons were a musket and modern transportation was a saddle, where did they come up with the ages for the column? They made them up based on a belief in uniform processes and no global flood. So they assigned ages based on how long they say the layers formed based on how they observed in their five or ten year study. Anyways, that's where the geologic column was made up. In fact, this book tells kids on page 306, we date the rock layer by the index fossils in it. Okay, fair enough. Where do they get the age of the index fossil? Well, on page 307, it says, we date that index fossil by the rock layer it's in. You date the rock layer by the fossil and the fossil by the rock layer. It's a total circular argument based on the geologic column or time scale. For instance, so the lobe fish were index fossils for rock up to 325 million years old, five times as long as they say dinosaurs have been extinct. So any layer found with the lobe fin in it, and everything in that entire layer was dated up to 325 million years old, except the lobe fin fish has been found alive today. Yeah. <laughs> Not extinct, 325 million years. Yeah. Now, in fact, he's been found alive today in several oceans. So, and I, I said earlier uh, this morning that we all have the same evidence. People say, hey, Russ, what evidence do you have? The Bible's true. I always say we all, the same evidence atheists use to say it's not true. We all live in the same world. We all have the same evidence. It's never been about evidence. It's about who gets to interpret the evidence. So you can look at this, this evidence right here two ways. I look at the living lobefin fish and say that refutes the old earth dating methods. You can say, no, Russ, it just proves that scuba diver is 325 million years old. <laughs> you, you will have to take your pick which of the two you want to believe. But their index fossils, which are the key to the old earth dating methods, have become a total embarrassment to them. They're trying to distance themselves from them, but they can't because they picked the dates from the column. 
but they're showing up alive today by the dozens, like the Walimi pine tree. We're told it's extinct for 150 million years, over twice as long as they say dinosaurs have been extinct. Found alive in three locations today, now bred and sold in, in uh, nurseries and such. But they're, they're showing up alive so much today, they had to come up with a scientific classification for them. They call them Lazarus Taxon because they've risen from the dead. But they never were extinct. We just hadn't discovered them yet. And that destroys the geologic column. By the way, the geologic column or time scale, which is where the old earth beliefs come from, it's only been found in its entirety two places in the entire world in that order with the corresponding index fossils in the right order. That's school textbooks and museum displays. Now, nowhere in the world has it been found that I'm aware of. Now, follow me closely on this. Even the diehard old earthers, whose entire worldview is based on millions of years, they readily admit it's not there in 99.5% of the Earth's surface. But they do claim there's a little piece here, a little piece there, maybe one half of 1% of the Earth's surface has the column. I've checked out a dozen of the places they claim it was there. They don't either have the right layers in the right order or the index fossils. Nowhere am I aware of does it exist out in the natural world. Now, if it really had formed slowly, it should be in 99.5% of the surface. Maybe a volcanic eruption or something might have messed it up in one spot, but it should be almost everywhere, and it is not. This from uh, American Journal of Science. Radiometric dating would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been there first. Well, what's a geologic column have to do with these scientific radioisotope dating methods? The radioisotope dating methods have a, get a wide range they have to get a date that matches the column, and then they select it. Someone sent me this package of rock salt. On the back, the label says, according to the geologic column, it's 250 million years old. And at the bottom, it says it expired last June. <laughs> I was crushed. I knew I, I put off using it and put off using it, and now, I, now it's spoiled. <clears throat> Think about this logically. Scientific testing has found that organic samples from all of the fossil-bearing layers that we're told are up to 600 million years old are found with carbon-14 in them, in all those layers, which should be gone in less than 80,000 years. Oh, and better yet, it's in the same range of amount. Remember, it decays away over time. Same range from the top layer all the way through to the bottom layer. That means all those layers, what? Had to form in the same event, they're all the same age. And nothing but a global flood can explain that. Did I mention that a global flood explains how those layers form quickly, wiping out every old earth belief that puts death before Adam and provided the foundation for Darwinism, naturalism, humanism, atheism, agnosticism, and all the compromised positions inside the church today? Did you know that never has an oil deposit, a natural gas deposit, or, or coal layers been found that don't still contain carbon-14? We're told these things are hundreds of millions of years old. Carbon-14 would be gone in a few thousand years. Continental drift, based on uniformity and no global flood, as the Bible foretold. We look at the continents today, and they've separated a certain amount apart. They're wobbling maybe a half inch a year, and based on uniformity, we're taught it took millions of years for them to drift apart. The Bible says at the start of the flood, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. The fountains of the deep erupted, and uh, they split up the continents. In fact, the, uh, the earth today is crisscrossed 
with about 50,000 miles of these fault lines. Many of them run right down the middle of the oceans, like the Mid-Atlantic Ridge between uh, North America and Europe. And it looks like they slid apart. The, sometime toward the end of the flood, the, the continent slid apart from where they had been broken up by the fountains of the deep erupting. Continental drift took place quickly during the latter part of the flood, not slowly and like the never seen processes today. What about the ice age? We're taught there were dozens of ice ages based on uniformity and the belief in no global flood. We're taught that the ice ages cover millions and millions of years of time. What about it from a biblical standpoint? The scalding hot waters of the fountains of the deep erupted. This warmed up the oceans. It's estimated that the flood waters during the global flood averaged about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. This led to massive evaporation. I mean, some places might have been 500 degrees, some places might have been 40 degrees, about 120 degrees on average. This led to massive evaporation as the clouds rained down over the equators and pounded snow onto the poles, forming the Ice Age and the ice, uh, or the ice caps, and the Ice Age was upon the globe and upon the world from the global flood till about six or 700 years afterwards. Um, you know, the secularists teach that the Ice Age has happened during a cooling cycle of Earth, right? I say that makes no sense. Wouldn't a cooling cycle cool down the oceans? Wouldn't that end evaporation? How'd the water get to the poles? takes warm oceans and evaporation to move the water to the poles where they could snow down and form the ice caps. Um, the ice age was upon the earth, and as we talked earlier, that's why animals and people could spread out. Once the people had spread out and the water slowly cooled, evaporation became less and less. The ice age ended. The ice caps in the lower latitudes melted back quickly, filling in the oceans. Don't destroy the U.S. economy because of global freezing. Oh, I'm sorry, global freezing, that was the 1970s. Yeah, that's right. Don't destroy the, the U.S. economy because of acid rain. Oh, wait a minute, that, that was the 1980s. Don't destroy the U.S. economy because of the hole in the ozone. Oh, wait a minute, that was the 90s. Don't destroy because of global warming. Wait a minute, that was 10 years. Oh, climate change, that right, destroy. Do you see what I'm saying? This propaganda has been going on for a long, long time. There's nothing new. But what's changed is they've been indoctrinating our children through the public schools and colleges, and they're becoming voting age now, and they, they, they don't know our history. There's nothing new about these alarmists. They've been wrong time after time after time, and they are wrong today. Well, let's talk about Grand Canyon in this area. Late flood erosion, the continents had separated, Late flood erosion, late waters running across what's now the southwestern United States, removed up to two miles of stratified layers from above the southwestern United States, leaving behind what's called the Grand Staircase. This is a uh, National Park Service depiction. Uh, this would be north, south. This depicts Grand Canyon. Um, if you look at this, you'll see this... Uh, Mustard-colored layer represents the Kaibab limestone that makes up the rim of Grand Canyon. If you go north, you see it's subducted, and you keep going. Eventually, it's covered by two miles of other layers that have been removed as you go south and leaving behind these steps called the Grand Staircase. So the waters as they're eroding, they cut the 2,500-foot paint cliffs of Bryce, 
drop south, cut the 2,500 foot cliffs where you find Zion today, drop further south, cut the 2,000 foot tall Vermilion cliffs. They cut a short 500 foot uh, chocolate cliffs here. Then they drop south and cut the 2,000 foot tall Mogollon Rim. Now this left behind, as this, these layers were removed, the mountains arose and the valley sank down. The, the mountains arose at that point in time. Uh, the Rocky Mountains north uh, of Grand Canyon and through Colorado and north arose. The uh, Wasatch Mountains in Utah arose. The Sierra Madres in California arose, all in a north-south trending direction, almost as if the continent was moving and stopped suddenly, and they buckled. That, cut, that led the very last of the floodwaters in a southerly direction, where they carved out uh, the scab lands of southern Utah and northern Arizona. Now, also the Kaibab uh, Plateau, 2,000 feet of layers had been, well, two miles of layers had been removed, and it also buckled, forming what's called the Kaibab Upwarp or the Kaibab Uplift. This is snow, the whitest snow, that's the Kaibab, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uplift, where the layers were uplifted. Grand Canyon does not cut into the plain. Grand Canyon cuts through the upwarp. So the upwarp formed late floodwaters channeled in through Marble Canyon from the north and the little Colorado Canyon from the east where they met at the base of the upwarp. They cut through the upwarp and formed Grand Canyon in a matter of days. We're talking water that was probably flowing at about 120 miles per hour and it acted like a giant belt sander. It was carrying grains of sand, up to 200,000 pound boulders, ripping through that upwarp and leaving behind the straight up and down canyon walls, which is indicative of a very fast formation. If you go to the canyon today, you'll look down in the gorge and realize there's hardly any rock debris, which is reminiscent of a recently formed canyon. Rock walls collapse over time. So that's the canyon form. There's, there's two or three really good theories on how it formed and there's a lot of research going on to see which one is best. And I don't get into which theory. There's the breach dam theory that this acted as a huge dam and, and kept, caught late flood runoff and runoff from the Colorado Plateau. Eventually the waters breached the dam right here and um, cut through in this channeling event. The other is the channeling event happened right at the end of the flood. There's a few different theories and I let the scientists argue about that. Um, but the key is, and this is almost impossible to believe, but the old earthers that own the system, let this sink in. They do not have a viable way to explain how the canyon could have formed slowly. For 150 years, they taught the ancient river theory that the upwarp uplifted at the exact same rate the river was cutting the canyon. They had to come up with that because rivers don't flow uphill. <laughs> well, that was debunked 60 years ago, and they finally stopped teaching it about 15 years ago. They came up with the stream capture theory that maybe uh, the river was cutting in from one side and, and, and erosion was forming a channel over this side and eventually they met and the water came through. Uh, the, the inventor called it the Pergocious Gully Theory. It's pretty much scientifically debunked. I used to lead trips through the whole canyon and we'd stop at Kanab Creek, which is um, in this area here, where they say that uh, the two met and it's just a straight three-mile stretch with 700-foot-tall straight-up-and-down cliffs on one side, which is indicative of fast formation. And they say it met there, but Kanab Creek just goes into meandering turns immediately away, so it just doesn't make any sense. Um, the breach dam theory or the channeling theory are 
I think, the best ones at this point in time. But it happened quickly uh, regardless. Only a global flood can explain these and other evidences. Uh, belief in the, your, your belief in the age of the earth really comes down to uh, how the strata layers formed. Did they form slowly and uniformly over millions of years of time or quickly during the global flood? Uh, the sacralists will claim we're non-scientific, actually. The science is on our side, and they are fulfilling prophecy by claiming uniformity and no global flood. Yet, kids are taught, and it's a first-grade book, Earth has changed much since it formed four and a half billion years ago based on radiometric dating of meteorites when they don't know when or where they formed. But later on, you tell that same child by one man, sin entered the world and death by sin, and they've already been told that death existed for millions and billions of years before man. See, the kingdom of heaven is likened to leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. That, 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 that pinch of leaven represents sin, and a pinch of sin can really spoil your faith. Yet over 90% of our own accredited colleges and seminaries teach old earth beliefs, denying the global flood and putting death before Adam. And I'm not attacking them. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm challenging them. And I'm challenging us to challenge them to stop compromising God's word. I'll say this. If I were Satan, one of the first things I would do is I'd get teachers into our colleges and seminaries. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that what you would do? Think about it. Absolutely. <clears throat> And today we've got gap theorists, theistic evolutionists, progressive creationists, takeoffs on all those. Man, it's just a mess. It's a mess out there. And we need, to, we need to help each other by sometimes challenging each other. I used to be a theistic evolutionist. I understand that. Praise God. God let me see this information. I get some weird emails. Here's one. As a pastor, I ask, what gives you the right to go around telling people your uneducated opinion, the Bible's creation and flood stories are true? God. <laughs> Here's another one. As a Christian with a college degree, I'm utterly embarrassed by the garbage you spew out of your mouth. Science proves there was never a global flood and death existed long before man. To believe anything else, like God's word, is delusional. No, it's called being a believer and it's called knowing real science instead of the fake science you've been misled to believe in. Uh, what is it? 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Avoid science. Uh, avoid Vain, babbins, oppositions of science, falsely so-called. Yes, they, the word science is probably better uh, translated knowledge. Watch out for false knowledge, even that masquerading as if it were science. Because teaching that death existed before Adam eliminates teaching man's sin brought in death, separating man from God, requiring our redemption through Jesus. Because a pinch of leaven will spoil your faith. And if the age of the earth is an issue for you, don't feel left out. It's an issue for 99% of us. And I cover it in our Old Earth Global Flood message here and in my book, Cost. Now, the Bible, again, the only book in the history of the world that lives on its ability to correctly predict the future. Uh, this was given to the ancient Israelites saying that people would turn their back on God, saying to a stone, thou has brought me forth. Oh. Wow. Who in the world would let someone teach them they evolved from a stone, right, or came from a stone? Well, we wouldn't let that happen today, right? Right? Let's go to the modern textbook. Kids, Earth is thought to form four and a half billion years ago. It started out as a big ball of hot rock. And oceans formed as it rained on the stone for millions of years of time. They are teaching we came from a wet stone. The Big Bang, by the way, we're on our fourth Big Bang. The, the current one's been pretty much debunked for about 12 years. 
And then they put up the James Webb Telescope about six months ago, and it has totally crushed what the remaining remnants of the current Big Bang. So right now, they've got nothing. So they'll keep teaching the Big Bang until they come up with something to replace it, because the only other replacement is in the beginning God created. But their teaching we came from a stone. Nothing blew up. The Big Bang, big rock formed, it rained on the rock. I like to kid them and say, you guys think we came from a wet rock. It gets them upset, but it also gets them thinking. The Bible says to prove all things. You know, the law of biogenesis holds that life only comes from living matter. You can't get non-living matter to, to begin life. You can't have a wet, sterile rock and get life from it. That's a scientific law. Real science of believer's best friend. So to get around the law, they say, well, it's just a simple cell. You ever heard of the simple cell? Oh, yeah. Just a simple, even a simple cell has genetic information, which is beyond our, our comprehension. It's so complex. But this textbook tells kids, kids, all the many forms of life on, day, on earth today are descended, stated as a fact, from a common ancestor found in a population of primitive unicellular organisms. How in the world is a kid supposed to argue with that? They've just been told it's a scientific fact. We all came from this simple cell. What evidence do they have? You know, science is knowledge derived from the evidence. What it says right here, no traces of those events remain. From the Big Bang to the Big Rock to the rain on the rock to the poof moment where life overcame the law of biogenesis and, and evolved in everything from the simple cell, there's not a shred of evidence of that ever having happened. Nothing. Nothing. But knowledge, science is supposed to be knowledge derived from the study of the evidence. So at NAU... I'd spoken there several times, and it had such an impact that they actually started a, an accredited course attacking me in biblical creation. And they ran it for at least four years. I don't know if they still run it or not. But in the, in the class, uh, basically what they did was they, um, they just attacked me and attacked Christianity. It was a horrible class. I had a couple of Christian kids say, I'm going to take it and see what they do. They all dropped out within two weeks. They said it's the most horrible thing they've ever seen in their life. And... Um, <clears throat> The professor, he, his dad was a Bible college professor, and he went off to college. He told me, face-to-face, -face, said, learned the earth is millions of years old, lost his faith, and now he's a radical, homosexual, and anti-Christian professor. He told me face-to-face, -face, he said, I've misled hundreds of Christian kids, and I'll mislead hundreds more. I said, you said it right. You mislead him. You lied to him. You know you're lying to him. And anyways, he started this accredited course at NAU attacking me in creation. For the final exam, they made fun of me for an hour and a half. I've been married 40 years. Think that's going to bother me? Hey, come on. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Wow. When Joanna's not here to protect herself, you know. Um, so they used the book from the uh, president of the National Center of Science Education, who's an outspoken atheist. You know where her bias is coming from. So I went to the book using that class to see how does the president of the National Center of Science Education explain how life came about without God. And on page 26, it says the origin of life was a continuum of events with a lot of iffy stuff in the middle. That is the modern college <laughs> explanation for how life started on its own without God. So don't think that this is science. This is a fairy tale. In fact, this former Nobel Prize winning Harvard professor stated, modern biologists having reviewed the downfall of spontaneous generation, that's poof, life started on its own, yet unwilling to accept creation are left with nothing. They've got nothing, but they own the system. You know, they say, hey, if we just had the raw material to start life, life could form on its own. 
life is far too complex. We can't even get it to start on its own with labs and computers and such thrown in. Life does not come from non-life. But let's say they just had the uh, raw material to form a brick building. Just as in brick and mortar. They say given time, enough time and a source of energy, great design will come about. So let's say we haul a brick and mortar up to the top of a five-story building for energy. We push it off. And we give them a billion years. And once a second, for a billion years, we push off these piles of brick and mortar. How many beautiful brick structures do we get? We get this every single time, right? You take the same brick and mortar, throw in some intelligence, you'll get a beautiful structure every time. You see, the difference between intelligent biblical design and naturalistic random chance is immense. This hammer was found encased in rock. And um, if I came to you and I said, hey, this hammer is evolving from the rock, what would you think of me? You'd think, I'm a nut, I'm crazy, right? Well, why? They, they teach your children and grandchildren they evolve from a rock, and, and humans are hundreds of zillions of times more complex than a hammer. I mean, a hammer is a piece of iron and a stick put together. Why wouldn't you believe that it's evolving from the rock? It shows too much design to have come about on its own, right? And all it is is a, is a stick and a piece of iron put together. You are hundreds of zillions of times more complex than a hammer. Stop letting them teach your children and grandchildren they evolve from a wet rock. So they draw nice drawings, by the way. They have this nice drawing of the, the forearm of a human or a horse or a dog or a cat or a flipper or a whale. And they say, hey, look, you all have two bones in the forelimb, proof they, they've come from a common ancestor. Well, that's actually the best proof of Darwinism they have right there. But couldn't you just say that's also because maybe they have the same designer? I drive a Ford pickup truck, my neighbor has a Ford van, and their dashboards are identical. Yeah, it's not because they evolved from a moped. It's because they have the same designer. Similarities, hey, hey kids, especially kids in school, any argument of similarities proving evolution, please remember this. Always say to yourself, isn't that better proof they have the same designer? Yeah, similarity is proof of the same designer not evolving from a wet rock, overcoming all kinds of scientific laws, and leaving no evidence behind. Imagine that. Have you ever heard you're 98% the same in your biochemistry as a chimpanzee? They have to throw that out there. Now, real science, a believer's best friend. I've seen studies published in Nature magazine that there's a 30% difference. Why is, do they say it's only 2%? Um, you know, if, if similar uh, genetic information or, or biochemistry proves our evolutionary past, they should tell kids we evolve from worms. You're 75% the same as that in your biochemistry as some worms. You're 50% the same as that from a banana. Anyone evolve from a banana? Was that? No? Got to be careful. If you go to an auction, you're going to spend a lot of money moving in the wrong direction. Nobody. Okay, last time I, I spoke at a college campus, 500 students raised their hand to that. And they were serious because they've been taught we've all evolved from a common ancestor found in a population of primitive unicellular organisms, which means you're related to bananas. Pastor, I got home that night, got online, checked my family tree. There wasn't a banana in the whole bunch. Okay. Who's doing the ha-ha back there? Doesn't find my sense of humor very appealing, evidently. Only two of us got that. Think about genetic information. I don't think we understand 2% of it right now. 
We know it reads forwards and backwards. The best human technology only reads in one direction. And they're starting to suspect it might read diagonally on top of that. One mathematician and molecular biologist calculated the odds of one DNA chromosome, just one, forming itself in nature to be one in 10 to the 100 billionth power. What kind of a number is that? Well, one in 10 to the 80th power is considered absolute zero. One in 10 to the 100 billionth. That would be like you playing the Arizona lottery. And I'm not saying that you should. I'm saying if you did, it would be like your odds of winning the lottery every weekend, 52 weekends a year for 27,000 years in a row are mathematically better. And they don't need one. They need trillions. Humans are made up of an estimated 75 trillion cells. Each of your cells' DNA contains 3 billion base pairs of genetic information per cell. You know, we throw out big numbers all the time. Millions, we can kind of get a feel for. Billions, we really don't understand and forget about trillions. But so we can get a feel for these big numbers, let's use seconds, like 60 seconds in a minute. Let's use seconds. A million seconds ago was 11 days ago. About a week ago last Wednesday. That was a million seconds ago. What's the difference between a million and a billion? A billion seconds ago is back in 1989. That's the difference between a million and a billion. And a trillion would have been 32,000 years of time. We're how many trillions in debt? Oh, never mind. That's, that's another subject. <clears throat> Romans 1, 15 to 32. And all of this genetic information is so complex and so compactly stored, all the genetic information to code all seven and a half to eight billion people on Earth would fit into a container the size of an aspirin with room to spare. Wow, talk about complexity and design, mind-boggling. So if you understand the difference between micro and macro evolution, you'd want to debate anywhere in the world with a Darwinist from Harvard to Oxford to Stanford to the local high school. <clears throat> You know, in real science and engineering, we break things down to the trillionth of a degree. You'll have a very hard time getting a biology professor to break the word evolution even in half. Um, they, will not, they will fight tooth and nail not to have to define Darwinian evolution. They just throw out the word evolution. Well, there's lots of different types of evolution. Let's just speak about micro and macro evolution. Microevolution is all that real science ever observes, and it's observed all the time. Millions of examples could be shown. Micro are just changes within the same kind. Dogs producing dogs. You can breed flowers to get red, pink, yellow flowers. Micro changes are caused by the sorting or loss of the starting information. Genetic information gets weaker and weaker. It's called gene depletion, genetic depletion. And those changes within the kind are micro changes. You could call it microevolution, microvariation, microadaptation. They're just micro changes. That is not Darwinian evolution. It's the opposite of Darwinian evolution. Darwinian evolution is macro, which requires massive amounts of new and beneficial genetic information being added to a gene pool to change a canine into something else, like a whale, which is basically what they teach happened over, of course, the magic ingredient, which is what? Millions of years of time. Um, the problem is there's no examples, viable examples of macro change. See, the, the micro changes are caused by the loss of information. Again, macro, Darwinian needs massive amounts of new and beneficial genetic being added. Real science doesn't know how that can happen. 
Yes, I'm familiar with neo-Darwinism, which is what they teach, that mutations add the information. No mutations are caused by the loss of information as well. And I cover that in my book, Cost, with nice easy paragraphs taking on their top supposed mutational changes and showing how it doesn't work. It doesn't work for them. If you want to uh, lose a debate on a college campus, say they cannot add new information to a gene pool, you will lose that debate. If you want to win the debate, say they can't add new and beneficial genetic information, then you win the debate. Just as a simple example, this is extremely simple, it's not realistic. Let's say that a cat's leg, the, the genetic information to form leg actually spelled, was spelled out L-E-G. A mutation can mix that up, instead of L-E-G, it's L-G-E. Now, technically, even though that's a loss of functional information, technically that is new information. So if you want to lose the debate, say they can't add new information. If you want to win the debate, say they can't add new and beneficial genetic information. It's vital for kids in school, especially, all Christians, especially students, to understand that kinds only bring forth after their kind. With changes, losses in the genetic information leading to micro changes within the kind, but kinds only bring forth after their kind. That's vital for Christians to understand because 10 times in Genesis, we're told plants or animals will bring forth after their kind. That's the only thing science has ever observed to take place. You might be saying, well, come on, Russ, what about the ape men? You know, here's a, here's a textbook showing humans connected all sorts of things, and their proof, a nice red line. How can you argue with that? They got humans connected to worms and jellyfish, etc. Well, just in case, let's look at the, the, some of the most famous hominids, the supposed closest link between ape and man. From 1910 to the mid-1950s, Piltdown Man was the messiah for Darwinism, misled not millions, billions of people into rejecting Jesus Christ and believing we evolved from a wet rock. And then, after misleading so many people, it was proven in the mid-50s they'd taken the skull cap from a human, the jawbone from an orangutan, filed them down so they fit together, acid-treated both sides, buried them in a rock quarry in Piltdown, England, waited two years, came along and dug up Piltdown Man and spent the rest of their lives as world-renowned Darwinists and misled billions of people on a total fraud. Misled so many people, we finally kicked creation and prayer out of our school, started teaching our kids they evolved without God. Wow. Romans 1, 15 to 32, keep 1963 in mind. Nebraska Man was used as proof for Darwinism. All they found of Nebraska Man was a piece of a broken tooth. But from the broken tooth, they reconstructed Nebraska man, his family, even the tools they would have worked with. And then it was proven the tooth came from an extinct pig. Yeah, there's the real Nebraska man right there. <laughs> Lucy's been the, one of their two messiahs for the last 50 years. Uh, about, a, oh, I'd say about 35% of a skeleton was found. And um, they said, well, we know it's an ape becoming human because... The knee joint was slightly bigger than a normal ape's knee. Slightly bigger. You could take the knee joint of everybody in this room. They'd be different sizes. That didn't prove anything. They said that the thigh bone, the femur, angled to the knee, and humans have angled thigh bones. They forgot to mention all tree-dwelling apes have angled femurs. This is from 1987. Lucy is her name. Lucy is not a link between ape and man and did not walk upright like a human. But here's a textbook showing Lucy walking upright like a human and talking on a cell phone. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What are the odds? And, and look at the feet, human feet, a little hairy, but normal human feet. There were no feet found with the original. 
Uh, the actual feet and toes, they found other uh, such fossil scents. Australopithecus afarensis is a scientific name. They have curved fingers and toes so they can grab onto tree limbs. It's a tree-dwelling ape. Unbelievable. Brother. Yes, sir. Could you just comment real quick on something? So if all this is true, we know it's not true, but if it's true, shouldn't there be, if I was an evolutionist, I should be, be able to find this stuff everywhere I turn. Absolutely. Right? So mm -hmm. the idea of... Missing links or whatever? Be, I mean, because it takes what? A lot of death, a lot of time. So yeah. you should be able to dig under the ground, but oh, there's a... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you should... That's one thing you're saying. We don't see it. Yeah, we don't see it. I mean, I've stayed on college campuses, and all they have to do is give one example. They can't do it. Now, what they will do, if you're not understanding of their frauds, is they will throw out examples of microevolution, biblically correct micro. That's what they will always show. They'll show a change within a dog or a change within a pumpkin or a change within you know, something. But it'll always be the same kind, bringing after their kind, caused by the sorting and the loss of information, the exact opposite of what Darwinian macro. And that's the reason they won't define macro and micro, because they don't have any examples of macro to put out there. And it's, once, you, once you establish the difference between micro and macro, they've got nowhere to go. They're going to get embarrassed from then out because the only thing they can do is either throw out micro and you point out, no, that's biblical correct micro, or they will start name calling, in which case you say name calling is the last bastion for those with no evidence to put forth. Let's stick to the facts. They don't have any facts. It's going to be a long night from then on. So, but everybody there in the, in the, in the place is going to see, hey, these guys don't have anything, but they own the system. And they close the door and they teach the kids. You got, you got, you got Lucy. You got Piltdown Man. You got similar biochemistry. You're ninety-eight percent the same. Your biochemistry is a chimpanzee. Total fraud. Total lies. But we don't have. If you're not there to, to and I can make this look really silly, but I'm not there in those classrooms. Millions of kids will be taught that tomorrow. By the way, no wonder Jesus said, "Take heed that no man deceives you." Here's another email. You make Americans stupid by convincing weak-minded people your invisible God created the world. Face it, Darwinism is a proven fact. Well, it's a proven fact, except no one's ever seen anything Darwinian macro evolve. The fossil record shows no transitional forms that will hold up to true scrutiny. We have 200-plus million classified species on Earth. We don't have a single half-this, half-that flopping around anywhere. All changes are caused by the sorting or loss of genetic information, not by the gain of new and beneficial. And the global flood erodes, erodes their old earth platform, leaving them with nothing. And if Darwinism is an issue for you, I cover this really at their top 10 Darwinian teachings in a 45-minute message that just absolutely crushes Darwinism. Also my book, The Cost. So I spoke at, uh, in Grand Rapids. I've told a couple people this. A couple years ago, and, and Calvin College, which teaches theistic evolution, sent 50 of their science honor students there to harass and attack me in a loving Christian way. And I did our top 10 Darwinian beliefs. I walked out, they teach theistic evolution. I walked off to the edge of the stage. Three of their students got right in my face. This one young woman said, I hold an advanced degree in biology, and I came here to debate you about Darwinism, and you just showed me everything Calvin College is teaching is based on a lie. I said, well, praise God, go back and tell your professors to humble themselves to the word of God. Well, we would win if we get the information out there. The calling of our ministry is to get this information out there, to expose false anti-biblical teachings, and to provide a reason for the hope that's in the heart of all true believers and all true seekers. 
We do this through our various messages and teachings. Um, again, we've got them all, all my teachings on our five DVD set. Um, I don't copyright my DVDs. You can make all the copies that you want. Uh, the five DVD set, uh, and it works giving copies of those, but it's really better. I've got a, a single DVD called Give a Reason, based on Give a Reason for the Hopes in Your Heart, uh, where I, I just have the four in the very order I would, I would present them to anybody, an atheist, a believer that's struggling, anybody, and it will impact them. The first one is Top Ten Darwinian Beliefs, because you want to shock them. People think, oh, I couldn't have been lied to. They see that, they realize, holy cow, I have been lied to, and so are have billions of other people. Uh, my book, Cost, which the new uh, public accredited uh, school course is based on, covers the top 10 old earth beliefs, evil fruit of the beliefs, Darwinian beliefs, etc., and the top 10 reasons to believe in the flood and biblical creation. Um, one lady uh, gave it to her pastor for Christmas a year ago. He, he, he emailed me and said, as a pastor, I read the cost on a cross-country flight. This is from New York to Phoenix. He said, I took off a gap theorist of 30 years, and I landed a biblical creationist. So real science is on our side. Most people are, that are misled, they're not doing it because they're evil. They're doing it because they've been misled. They, they've never heard there's even information to support what the Bible says. Make a huge impact if we can get to them. Um, all these books and all are all on my uh, thumb drives. I've got the one, uh, which one is it? The blue, no, not the blue one. Oh, I'm sorry, I've got the, the one essential one over here. It's got the five DVD set, the book cost, and the coloring books. Another one has all that, plus 27 more videos, 200 plus audios, four other books, three of which I read, uh, wrote rather. I read them too, by the way. And um, 600 plus articles I've written. So uh, all that's on there. I don't copyright any of that again. You can make a million copies. I wish you would. I wish everybody would get this. Hey, join us on one of our Rim and Raft trips. All of our trips were sold out this year. So two weeks ago, we added another one that leaves Phoenix on, uh, it starts in Phoenix with a dinner and all on June 8th. And we go up to the canyon on the 9th. We do our raft trip on the 10th and get back to Phoenix that night. And most people, a lot of people fly in for that. They, uh, they stay overnight and uh, take off the next morning. If you're interested, though, uh, let me know or contact me. My guess is that this, it's already about halfway sold out. It'll probably be sold out here in about the next three weeks. So give that some thought. How many of you have been to Grand Canyon? Everybody, right? At Grand Canyon, I can show you where the original creation rock is, and I can show you where the first of the floodwaters lay right on top of the creation rock. And when you see it, you're going to think, why didn't I realize that myself? It's really obvious. I'll, I'll give you the hint. The original creation rock isn't stratified. The stratified layers are the flood layers. Yep. The flood eroded the top two miles, separated them by grain size, weight, and density, and then laid them back down in the stratified layers we see today. Uh, where they meet at, can at the canyon, uh, geologically, they call it the great unconformity because they're missing uh, 100 billion years of layers that are supposed to be between there. I call it the great inconsistency because it fits with the, with the Bible, what the Bible says. I can explain the two miles of missing layers above. Here I am at the rim. Where'd they go? There we go. See this butte behind me? That's a desert butte. That's a 900-foot butte on top of the Kaibab limestone that makes up the rim of the canyon. That's 900-foot remnant of the two miles that have been removed. I'm pointing 65 miles north. You can see the first 2,000-foot step from there, the uh, Vermilion Cliffs. Um, so it's a, it's a really good Christian trip if you have the opportunity. I hope you guys would join us for that. Um, let me end with this. Again, from the book of John, 
In the beginning was the Word, and all things were made by him. The Word of God is our creator. The creator is the Word of God. And our creator, the Word, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the Word of God, and Jesus Christ is our creator. Now, Jesus also called himself the bread of life, so he's the Word of God and the, and the creator. But when tempted by Satan, he told Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God meaning word for word and cover to cover, which means we can believe that Jesus is the word of God who created in six days, resting on the seventh. We can believe he judged the world with a flood of waters that covered all the high hills under the whole heaven. We can trust and believe that he came to earth to die on a cross, his shed blood covering our sin, and he resurrected the third day to defeat death for eternity. We can believe that he currently sits at the right hand of the Father, and we can also know that he is coming back soon. And the more I see the world going the way it is, the more I know uh, I, I agree with Jesus' last words, which are, surely I come back quickly. Please come back quickly, dear Lord Jesus.